I will mention that I'll be leaving after the service today for this week. The, the Baptist Fellowship Association Conference is this week, so Grace and I will be leaving after the service, and Pastor Aaron will be preaching tonight. If you need anything this week, I know you can contact him. He'll be around to help you with, with whatever needs you might have. And I would appreciate your prayers as well as we continue to evaluate this uh, association, if it would be one we can partner with for our church planting desire in the city of Detroit. Uh, we need, want to meet some people that can help with that. So pray for us this week. This morning, I am going to ask for a show of hands. I don't usually do that, but today I will raise your hand if you own an article of clothing that identifies a sports team. I don't care if it's a, a, a national team, if it's a, a school team like Bethany Christian School, if it's a local, local youth soccer team. Do you have something that has an article on it that says a team name or logo? How many of you? Raise, raise a hand. Yeah, we've got pretty good representation uh, of, of our congregation. Now I want you to think about it. We are not exactly a sports-minded church. So for us to have that level of representation is pretty significant, I think, for us. We have a few people in our, our church who participate regularly in sports. We, we have a few more, I know, that watch sports on a semi-regular basis. Still, most of our church shows a minimal concern for sports, and yet... More than half our hands were raised as far as owning an article of clothing that, that would identify us with a team. We would see other people wearing the same shirt name or the same baseball cap or whatever it might be and know that we are identified as having a common identity with this person. We use articles of clothing to display the unity that, that we have with sports teams. What displays our unity as Christians? How do we show our common identity with other believers? Since most of you have been here the, the past couple of weeks, I won't spend a whole lot of time reviewing this morning, Paul has been addressing the, the transformation that Christ makes in our lives in, in the, the book of Colossians. And he's been warning us of the distractions that, that come along that try to give, take our gaze away from Christ. <coughs> Specifically, he has been addressing at, at the section of the letter we're now, the, the false idea that, that we're saved for the righteousness of Christ, which is not the false idea, that is truth, we're saved by the righteousness of Christ, but he's been addressing the false idea, if that's the case, then it really doesn't matter how we live. We can live however we want because we stand in Christ's righteousness, not our own. That's the false idea that he's talking about, that, that we can go ahead and live our lives however we might wish. In the paragraph that we looked at over the last couple of weeks, Paul's contrasted our, our former life with our new life. He's been given us this contract. He says, Christ's saving work in our life, it makes this dividing point. We have a former life now that's been put aside, and we have a new life now that is put on. That occurs at the moment of salvation, the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ. The implication that Paul's been, been spelling out is that our life should reflect this transforming event. We should put off the characteristics of that old life, and we should put on the characteristics of the new life. It matters how we live our life because our life reflects either the former or the new. 
Remember, Paul is addressing believers. He assumes in this letter, by this point, he assumes that the readers know Christ. In other words, his assumption is that we all know Christ. That may not be a valid assumption in a group this size. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, as I've said other weeks, talk to me outside the service. Talk to Pastor Aaron. We'd be, lo- we'd be glad to share with you how you can know Jesus Christ as Savior. Paul assumes that everyone knows Jesus Christ at this point in the letter. He's assuming that you have a former life and a new life. If you don't know Jesus Christ, all you have is a former life. If you don't know him as Savior, you don't have that event that gives you the new life. Paul's assuming that we have both here because of Christ. He's addressing believers. And in a somewhat surprising twist that we saw last week in the final verse that we looked at, verse 11 of chapter 3, Paul suddenly gives us a little twist where he's been telling us individually about this former life and then all of a sudden he says, and collectively, there's an implication. All of us who have this single defining event in our life that now have this new life collectively come together and something happens as well. Though something that I talked about is that Christ supersedes all the other characteristics that we might use to identify ourselves with natural groups. Things like ethnicity, race, culture, economic status. These things that we would identify in the former life as the characteristics we group ourselves together. And he says those are now replaced by a new, overriding, superseding characteristic, that of Christ. Our commonality in Christ It remains the the central focus in the verses that we'll look at this morning. Paul's been stringing a number of therefore statements together in in this section. Paragraphs together that begin with therefore. Logical conclusions that that follow from previous considerations. He, He gives us a previous consideration. Therefore, this too must be true. If this is true, therefore, this is true. And therefore, then this is true. And he continues that now. For some reason... The New American Standard in, in verse 12 probably give us a little variety. They, they begin the paragraph with the word so, but Paul literally is giving us another therefore. He, the exact same words as introduced the previous paragraphs of therefore. What Paul actually is telling us is that if Christ is the defining characteristic of our life, if he is the one that, that supersedes all these other characteristics of the former life, if Christ now is the foremost characteristic, what's the implication? Therefore, Christ is now the defining characteristics, therefore, the way I would state the overall idea, therefore, of that, because that is true, therefore, our life in Christ, our new life in Christ, is displayed through unity among his people. That's the implication. That's the therefore. Because Christ is this defining reality, this this superseding characteristic, therefore, he must be displayed through unity among his people. We don't need a t-shirt to show our common identity. We wear unity. Our new life in Christ is displayed through unity among his people. 
Many of those former characteristics, those things that we used to use to define ourselves, the things he mentioned last week, those things serve to divide us from each other. They, they cause us to separate into different groups. Christ changes that. He unites us. Our new life in Christ is displayed through unity among his people. Let's look at our verses for today. Verse 12 of Colossians 3 so, or really therefore, therefore, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Our new life in Christ is displayed through unity among his people. That, that's our main idea today. And, and each of these verses that we just read gives us something that's required for that unity to happen. Our new life in Christ is, is on the screen. It's displayed through this unity. What do we need for unity? Well, here's three things. In verse 12, we have the attitude of unity. The attitude. If you look back up, or if you remember in verses 5 and verse 9 of this chapter, those two verses, Paul gave us two different lists, and each of those lists were five things. They were things that were part of the old life, the former life, the things we were to put off. Well, now in verse 12, he gives us a list of five things to put on. In fact, Paul writes as a command, put on these things. It's not optional. If you have new life in Christ, these are to be part of it. These five things are just simply part of what we have. He doesn't give us an explanation of the things. He, he just lists them, just like he told us of those old characteristics. These were part of our life. Well, these now need to be part of our life. Yet if you look at the list he gives us here, a list of five things, heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. All of those things have to do with our attitude in relationship to others. That's why I'm calling this verse the attitude of unity. Now, before we look at the, the things that are listed, notice that, that Paul begins the verse by undergirding his command to put these things on with some facts. Some, some things that that need to be in place in order to have an attitude of unity. First, we need to remember who we are. Before we have the right attitude, we need to remember who we are. A proper attitude has to begin with a proper understanding of who we are. Our, our salvation in Christ, it, it demonstrates that, that we are in an incomparable position. We have been Chosen by God, holy and beloved. What a description. Chosen by God. Paul reminds us here that, that before the foundation of the world, as he expresses in, in Ephesians 1, God chose us for salvation. If you think about it, when God chose us, creation didn't even exist at that point. God certainly didn't choose us because anything that we did it would be millennia before we'd even exist when God chose us. And 
Romans makes it very clear, when we finally do come on the scene of history, when we exist, the only thing we can do is rebel against God because of our sin nature. There is nothing in us that causes us to be chosen by God. It wasn't that we were inherently so good that God said, I just got to choose Dwight. Man, he is grand. No, it wasn't because we were worthy of God's choice. God chose us because his good pleasure was to do so. The reality is we probably find that pretty easy to believe when it comes to others. It's easy to believe that God chose some of these other people in this room because of his good pleasure, not because they were good. That's not hard. All we have to do is look around and we see some people here and we say, yeah, yeah, there was nothing in them that would cause God to choose them. But do we really think of ourselves that way? Do we really think that God chose us as trophies of his grace, not as a reward for our inherent goodness? God chose us. And by choosing us, he set us apart as holy and demonstrated that we are loved by him simply as trophies of his grace. We are holy and beloved because we were chosen by God. That is who we are. Now, Paul doesn't state it in the verse here. He mentions this. So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, that's who you are. Keep that in mind. Remember that fact. He doesn't state why he says that, but I think he throws in this little reminder before it gets down to the issues of unity because that reminder humbles us. As I said, we like to think of ourselves as pretty good. We need to be reminded that we are not good. We're only holy and beloved because God chose us. And then having helped us remember who we are, Paul instructs us to think appropriately for who we are. Think appropriately for who we are. Remember who we are and then think appropriately for who we are. We are to put on a heart of compassion or the bowels of mercies, if you have the King James Version, the King James actually translates a Greek idiom very literally, but, but translating it in literal fashion into English doesn't make any sense in our vernacular. We don't talk about the bowels of mercies. We talk about the heart of compassion. We're to put that on. We're also to put on kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. As I said earlier, these are qualities that, that represent attitudes toward others. The, these are instructions regarding how we are to think about other people. We are to think compassionately toward others. We are to think kindly toward others. We are to think humbly about ourselves when we compare ourselves to others. We are to think gently toward others. We are to think patiently toward others. Specifically, we are to think in ways that will build unity between us and others. Now, I would suggest, since the previous verses dealt with others comprising the church, and the next verse specifically mentions one another, Paul is talking specifically here about attitudes toward others within the church. We are to show compassion and kindness and so forth toward people in general. That, that's true. 
Yet the special reason for us to hold these attitudes here is towards those who are in the church. The people sitting in this room are just like us. Chosen by God. Holy. Beloved. They are just like us. These thoughts are the only appropriate way for us to think toward others in the church. Before we move on, do a gut check with your own attitudes. Look at the people in this room. Go ahead, swivel your head, it's okay. You don't have to sit so firm in your pew that you don't look around. Look at the people in this room. Last week, we identified the challenge to simply identify with these people because they're in Christ. Well, now think about the attitudes that you have towards the people in this room. Does your attitude match your identification with these people? Does your attitude toward others match who you are? One who had nothing good to offer God but was chosen by God anyway. We must think appropriately for who we are. Our new life in Christ is displayed through unity among his people. That display of unity begins with the attitude of unity. Now, in order to have the attitude of unity, we have to remember who we are and then think appropriately for who we are. As we move on to the next verse, Paul follows the attitude of unity with the action of unity. The action of unity. Attitudes beget action. That's how it works. We think in our brain and we act out what we think of. How we think determines how we act. At the same time, we have to act. We must act. We can have great thoughts and they fall flat if they don't produce actions. My wife and I talk about this all the time. We have all these ideas that come up. We need to do so-and-so with so-and-so. We need our such-and-such with so-and-so. We think of these things we need to do, but we think of it late at night when we can't. You know, I need to send a text to so-and-so, but yeah, now's not the time. Well, by the end of the next day, it's never happened. Attitudes must produce actions to be of any value. In the case of unity, all thoughts of unity will fail to generate unity if we do not have the action of unity. That's what Paul highlights in verse 13. Actually, he gives two actions, two specific actions that are necessary to produce unity. First, endure others. Endure others. And that's the way I'm summarizing the, the point that Paul makes in the phrase that we have translated in the New American Standard as bear with one another. I, I suspect when we read bear with one another, we get the idea of helping people carry a heavy load. We, we know everyone has challenges in their lives. This life is tough. There's challenges at times. And it certainly helps to have someone come alongside and, and assist at those times to, to pick up the load, so to speak. That is not a wrong idea. We, we should do that. We should show acts of kindness wherever we can. Putting our arms and legs into our attitudes of kindness. Yet I'm not convinced that is exactly what Paul means here. The, the, wall, the, the word that Paul uses, it means to endure something unpleasant or difficult. 
When, when I was a teenager and we were raising sheep on the farm, one of the, the unpleasant tasks that I had to endure was the annual cleaning of the barn. Fortunately, with sheep, most of the time they can be outside. Even in North Dakota winters, as long as they had a little bit of shelter from the wind, they were fine outside. But when it came time in the early spring for the, the females to bear lambs, for the lambs to be born, we couldn't leave them outside. It was still, yes, it was early spring, but in North Dakota terms, that's midwinter here. So, so it was too cold for the, the lambs to be born outside. So we had to bring the, the females into the barn where they could have the warmth of the barn to, to bear the lambs and for the lambs to, to live for the first week or two. Well, that meant that by the end of a month or so, as, as we let the animals out of the barn, they'd had a month to do what animals do in the barn. The lambing season would be over, the animals were back outside, but we had to clean out what they left behind. That was a job I endured, not one I enjoyed. Well, I believe Paul is telling us to endure one another. People are the unpleasant job that sometimes we must endure. There are times when we may not enjoy one another, but we still must endure one another. The, the real test of our attitudes comes when other members of our church community act in, in ways that, that we find unpleasant. Our greatest test of unity comes when people are what we must endure. Remember last week that the church that God assembles is comprised of people, as we said, with a lot of differences. Those differences create real variety. I mentioned sports at the beginning. I said a few of you like to play sports. A few more may like to watch sports. Others can barely spell sports. We have variety. Some will consider football the ultimate sport. Others it might look to car racing. We have differences. And beyond the differences of likes, there will be differences of behavior that, that simply result from, from the natural groups, those old groups that are still real. There's differences that come from growing up in those groups. I'm pretty sure that if you grew up in another country, no matter how long you live in the United States, there'll be certain things that people born in the United States do that just make no sense. We Different groups. Growing up in North Dakota, I look at things differently as a farm boy than those who grew up in the city. We're different. And those differences, as we live life together, it, it can cause us to rub against one another. And sometimes we rub hard enough that it actually begins to get a little bit raw, doesn't it? It, it becomes an irritation. That's the point where unity becomes a challenge. Will we place Christ highest? Or, or will we place our personal preference for how the world is viewed higher? I'm not talking about biblically addressed matters where, where Christ our Savior has told us, here's how you think on these things. I'm talking about things that we think differently of that are not matters of biblical instruction. I'm talking about the kind of things of, can an electric vehicle driver sit right next to a gas-guzzling monster truck driver and worship together? 
can a knitter sit next to a marathon runner and worship together? We're different. Paul's point is we must share Christ. And sharing Christ means we must have unity. The first action of unity is that we endure others. Now, if that's not challenging enough, just enduring others can be a hard task, but if that's not challenging enough, look at the second thing he says to do in verse 13. Forgive others. Look carefully there. He says, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. That, that part there, whoever has a complaint against anyone, that means there will be times that people in this congregation will have a complaint against someone else in this congregation. Not only will a complaint exist, the, the implication, uh, the way it's put here, whoever has a complaint, the implication is it's a valid complaint. You have to forgive because your complaint is valid. People will have real genuine grievances against other people because other people sin against them. Folks, Paul is not giving us abstract ideas here. He's talking about real sins. I, I wish it were not the case, but it's not unusual at all for someone to, to come to me with a complaint about someone, something that someone did. It's not unusual even for after a short investigation, assuming an investigation is even necessary, that the complaint is valid. Whatever this person saying so-and-so did, it's true. They did do that. Person A has been wronged by person B. In fact, oftentimes person A and person B happen to be spouses to one another. The thing is, when, when I hear about sin between two people within the church or, or even more closely within a marriage within the church, it, it's not surprising. Sad, yes, it's sad, but it's not surprising. We are all still fighting against that former life. We all still fight that sin nature. More than any of us wish, we lose a battle from time to time in that fight. Yes, Christ won the war, but we nonetheless lose battles. Sin within the church happens. And sin threatens unity. What Paul is telling us, though, is sins cannot destroy unity. What destroys unity is refusal to forgive each other when we experience those sins. The sin in and of, of itself will not destroy unity. It's our unwillingness to forgive that ruptures unity. That's why Paul calls on us to forgive each other. In fact, look at the bar he sets. Here's how we are to measure our forgiveness. Just as, you know, not, not somewhat like, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I don't know how many times I've had people say to me something along the lines of, Pastor, you don't understand how bad this person has hurt me through their sin. I cannot forgive I'm sure even if people haven't said it, many have thought it. Generally, my answer is somewhere along this, this line. I probably don't understand 
how bad that person has hurt you. I probably don't understand how bad, but I do know that that person has not wronged you as much as you wronged Christ. Because you sinned against Christ and caused his death. He died as a result of your sin against him. So no matter how bad this other person has hurt you, it's not that bad because you're still sitting here talking to me. That person has not taken your life. But you took Christ. And now Christ is the one who's calling you to forgive that person. He's calling you to do that because he calls for unity within his church. Now I can almost hear some of the objections that may be going through your minds as you think through these thoughts. There, I can almost imagine it because I've heard them many times in my own mind as well in the mouths of others. What if the person will not acknowledge their sin? What, what if they're oblivious to their sin? How can I forgive when they won't even acknowledge it? Well, our Lord instructed us on, on such matter. He gave us instructions how to address that situation. Luke 17, 3, it says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. In other words, you have to go talk to the person. If they're oblivious to it, well, you need to go talk to them. If they won't acknowledge, you need to talk to them anyway. And if they refuse to acknowledge it as you go, well, the Lord also gave us the whole process of church discipline to bring more and more people into the picture to, to help the person see their sin. That's what you do. Okay, you might say, I know I have to go talk, but I still can't forgive because I have good reason to, to suspect that person is going to sin against me again. They're going to repeat that wrong and, and continue to hurt me. I know it because they've done it over and over again and they'll do it. I know. Again, our Lord addressed that. The very next verse, actually, from where he tells us to speak to the person, Luke 17, 4, he says, And if he sins, sins again, and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. What we need to understand is we are called to forgive actual past sins, not future sins. We forgive sins that have occurred, not sins that may occur. A sin only becomes a fact when it happens. Any speculation is irrelevant. It's only a sin when it happens, and we're called to forgive sins, not speculation. And once the sin happens, our Lord tells us to forgive again. In other words, the, the concern that the sin might reoccur does not give us an out to avoid forgiving a sin that has occurred. We must forgive each other just as the Lord forgave us. The action of unity. Forgive others. Our new life in Christ is displayed through unity among his people. Endure others and forgive others. Two actions here of unity that, that demonstrate the attitude of unity. Our attitude becomes actions. You know, some sermons seem to beg for alliteration. Today is one of those days. 
So Paul wraps up the action of unity in verse 14 with the attire of unity. The attire. I know the New American Standard and several other English translations translate verse 14 as if Paul is placing love as the supreme virtue above everything else. It translates it beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Yet, I know that's a biblical idea. Love is the supreme virtue. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the whole love chapter tells us it's supreme virtue. If you're gathering with us on Wednesday nights, I'm looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, and, and again, love is held up as the, the supreme virtue. So I know that's a valid idea, and yet I'm not convinced that's Paul's point here. Instead, I think Paul is continuing his garment metaphor, the metaphor he's been developing with the put-off and put-on idea. We put off the, the old sin nature like we put off old clothes, and we put on the new attributes like we put on new clothes. He's continuing that idea here. The word that Paul uses in verse 14 is simply the word over. It's a word that we would use to talk about putting something on as the topmost article of clothing. I put my suit jacket on over my shirt. Furthermore, the word we have translated as bond of unity, that's a word that means to bind something together. It's a connector. It ties things together. It's used in the verses of ligaments that hold joints together, for example. It binds us together. I think the NIV, the New International Version, is one English translation that really captures Paul's image in the way it translates the verse. It says, And over all of these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's as if, if Paul is picturing love as a belt or a robe that, that, that wraps around the attitudes and the actions that he's called for, holding it all together so that we have this perfect unity resulting. That is what love does, isn't it? Love is a binding force. It's a unifying force. Think about when you see a man and woman stand on this platform. They're standing here to bind themselves together in a covenant of marriage. They're having a ceremony that, that is designed to unite them together as husband and wife. Whenever that ceremony occurs, love plays a central role. The songs contain words extolling love. Any readings that they might have in the service will praise love. Inevitably, the, the vows contain words that, that promise to love and cherish one another. There's a recognition throughout the entire ceremony that love plays a binding role in their commitment to each other. Let's not forget what the Lord told his disciples in John 13, 34 and 35. Our Lord said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. As we've looked at New Testament one another commands over the years, I, I trust you recognize that love one another, that's the most frequent New Testament one another command. It's repeated some 16 times. Our Lord designed the church so that love will serve as the binding force. It's what holds us together. Love holds unity together. 
It's like this outermost garment. It, it holds it together, but it's also the first thing that people see when they look at you. It's the first thing people see when they look at us. So assess yourself. Is love what people see when they look at you? More significantly, think of our church. Is love the first thing that people see when they look at us? Is it our outermost attire, so to speak? It is the thing that is dis displayed front and center. Is the most visible thing about you the, the constant expression of love that you're making toward others in the church? Or when people happen to look at you, do they have a greater chance of seeing you grumbling or complaining than displaying love? Do they have a greater likelihood of seeing gossip coming out of your lips than words of love? When people look at you, will they see you hoarding your time and energy for your own interests or expending your time and energy in love toward others within the church? What does your life show as part of this church? And then collectively, what does our church show beyond or really over all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It is the attire of unity. Our new life in Christ is displayed through unity among his people. We need to put on the attire of unity. Our new life of Christ is displayed through unity among his people. There were a lot of hands that went up when I asked how many of you had clothing that, that represented a sports team. Based on, on that response, I expect that some of you will wear that clothing this week. And even if you don't, I know that all of us will see people wearing clothing that represents a sports team. There's enough youth, youth soccer going on during the summer year. You'll probably see soccer teams running around with clothing. You'll see caps and jackets and T-shirts. People show their common identity with various teams. Whenever you see that this week, ask yourself, am I displaying my common identity with Christ? Is our church displaying our common identity with Christ because I am feeding unity within our church? This morning, Paul's given us three things that we need for unity. One, we need the attitude of unity. Two, we need the action of unity. Three, we need the attire of unity. Our faith in Jesus Christ, it gives us new life. That's a fact. Our job is to display it. Our life in Christ is displayed through unity among his people. Let's pray. Father, we sit here this morning rejoicing in the new life that we have in Christ. Thank you, Father, for what you've given us. So undeserved, so infinite in value. We thank you for the life that we have in Christ. 
But Father, this morning we've also seen that you have challenged us, commanded us to display that life through unity with one another. So Father, my prayer today is that you would help us become the church that brilliantly displays what we have received from Christ through the unity that we have with one another. Father, I don't know what changes each of us may need to make, but I'm sure that all of us need to continue the, to make changes as the transforming work of Christ is still underway in all of our lives. So I pray this morning that your spirit would bring conviction where it's needed and change where it's required so that we will be men and women who display Christ. We thank you for him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.